0: executive breakthroughs podcast with your host jason troy executive coach and best-selling author get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful
1: executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight nine and ten figure businesses hire manage and develop a-level talent create a culture to skyrocket success build an extraordinary network
0: out of influencers and so much more Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. This is your host, Jason Troy. And today I'm joined with Scott Baradell. He is the president of Idea Grove, and it's one of the fastest growing PR and marketing agencies in the US. And Scott has been someone who's been questioning things his entire life, and that which led him on his path to being a fantastic journalist, blogger, and overall storyteller. And I think you're gonna enjoy his candid stories of growing up, how he challenged conventional thinking. And grew his business to where it is today. So let's get started and jump right into the episode. Hello, this is Jason Troy. Welcome back to another episode from Executive Breakthroughs. I have a fantastic guest today, Scott Baradell. He is the CEO of Idea Grove. They are a national PR and marketing firm working with some amazing clients, and Scott has got a fantastic story. We're 30 years of experience working as a journalist on the corporate side, also has his MBA, so he has pretty much all the things covered and you know, started this agency out from scratch and it was like 12 years ago, so he is going to give you a wealth of knowledge of where he's come, a lot of insights that he has, so get ready for a fantastic show. Well, welcome Scott.
1: Thank you for having me. hope I can live up to that
0: intro. (laughs) I'm sure that you can. So I'd love to get a little bit of your backstory to start off with to let people know, you know, where you came from. So you you grew up in Virginia?
1: Yeah, I was born in Pensacola, Florida, but moved uh, as a small child to uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Okay. And I grew up there, uh, went to the University of Virginia. Uh, My first journalism job was at a newspaper in Virginia, and then... I, uh, came down to the Dallas Times Herald back when that existed, and that's what brought me to Dallas so you back to in 1989 I came to Dallas. Did you have a so. big
0: family, small family?
1: One older brother. He's, uh, seven years older. Okay.
0: And, uh, both your, both your parents lived with them?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, we, uh, were, you know, your basic, uh, family lived in the suburbs. I think, uh... If I think about a Virginia Beach and what it was like, that's a that's a it's kind of a cool place because it's um it's a tourist town, military yep. town, fairly laid back, fairly blue collar, you know. Um, so coming to Dallas, um, uh, it's it's a little different, you know. I think that um, you know I grew up in a public school system where kids of every possible economic background were there. It didn't matter. Um, to the great majority of people at least my friends none of that mattered to people in terms of who your friends were who you hung out with and things like that and so uh, I think it helped me when I got to Dallas to be a little immune to some of the kind of uh, obsession with with status that is is kind of a stereotype here but I think any place that you're at um, it's all about the people you surround yourselves with
0: yeah so how did you get in I know your first foray was into journalism so how did you get into that where do you an avid reader growing up? Were you a writer? How did that sort of... Were you in your school newspaper? Kind of like, how did that sort of generate... What was the genesis of that?
1: Um, I, uh, when I was a small child, uh, and I'm kind of rel- reliving this through my daughter, who's who's nine now, because uh, she's... Uh, oh, we have a lot in common in terms of, you know, what we were like at that age. Uh, she likes to draw a lot. And, and I was... Uh, always sketching and drawing and then uh, so at a certain point um, I uh, maybe by junior high or middle school age I just got more and more interested in writing huh. reading um, I was always more interested in uh, current events news I was always I was an early reader of the newspaper you know I wasn't a book reader never really got into fiction but I really got into history got nonfiction time magazine i was one of these you know kids who was reading time magazine every week when it came in the mail um and i just enjoyed writing and so i guess those interests kind of led to going in the direction of journalism um so i was you know editor of the high school you know yearbook, and uh captain of the debate team you know those kind of it evolved to that and it had from you know it came from being interested in what was going on in the world and and, and enjoying writing But you didn't get a journalism, journalism
0: degree did you
1: well, UVA does not have a uh, journalism major. Okay. Um, so the journalism uh, classes are all in the uh, part of the English department. So you can get an English okay. major. But I actually got a history major. Uh, I was in the, the honors history program at UVA, which is a very intensive uh, two-year program. I studied you know, American Southern history, and um, which is you know probably not many better places to study that.
0: Um, and amazing than you moved to Dallas, so for studying.
1: You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, South. of course the, the my parents were both from Mississippi, and okay. um, and of course Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy and all this. So I, I you know grew up with all of this, going to Confederate battlefields and all of that. And so a lot of I honestly I think what drove me in history um, was trying to understand all this because my parents had views about um, race and other things that to me flew in the face of what felt right to me. Um, And I think it probably led to me being a more of a questioning person, which is I think what leads people into journalism a lot of times, um, questioning the conventional wisdom about things. Um, And um, so, a lot of me focusing on Southern history was trying to understand what was making these people tick. You know, why were they making decisions that um, hurt other people? Um, things like that. So, That's
0: interesting to think that, like, wh- how your parents' viewpoints shaped what you did, and you know, and how you a- looked at some things and, and looked in, you know, look into this major that you ended up having because you could have focused on a lot of different areas. And you, it's interesting that you chose that. It. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think we're all, in one way or another, uh, we react uh, and, and respond to, you know, our the generation before us? I mean, in most cases, people have the same religion as their parents. They have the same politics as their parents. I mean, this is statistically true. Yes. It's passed on. Um, but in other cases, um, it's uh, the opposite reaction. Um, you reject you know, there are, there are a lot of people that are very anti Catholic because they were raised in Catholic schools. And then there are people who are very, uh, very much uh, adherents and, and their children pass along. But, you know, you can have a reaction either way. In my case, um, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, loved my parents, but, but saw a lot of contradictions and things that I disagreed with. And, and I think, when I went into journalism, I was just into investigative reporting, finding out the truth about things, but, and that, honestly, I mean, it started with my own family. And you, but you have to come to terms with that, you know? And it also has helped me look at things in a more nuanced way, that, um, you know, everything is not pure good and evil, black and white. Um, people make um, bad choices um, for sometimes complex reasons. And uh, anyway, I, I think overall, it's led to me being fairly, um, I certainly have some strong political views about, about things, but in, in terms of how I treat people as individuals, um, uh, to be very accepting, I guess, and to under not necessarily agree with people about things that I don't think are... are uh, are correct um but to you're open to uh, their viewpoints to be open to listen and And, listen and so to see what's happened that's one of the reasons why i went into i've enjoyed communications you know um i think pr which is where i went to when i went corporate can and should be a very open honest and transparent way to to create a dialogue um that's what i try to do with it that's what i enjoy about it um I hate that um, we've reached a place where, uh, particularly in the political sphere, there's so much just um, thoughtless, you know, as in not thinking before you talk, just back and forth where people are not respecting. You you can vehemently disagree with someone and, and still not, you know, dehumanize them, you know, which is what happens online today. Yes, I think what's so sad, I was doing blogging and all this stuff and, 2005 and um, when not a lot of people were doing it and I was part of all this group of people who were like this is going to change things for the better in all these ways in other words these media conglomerates are not the only one who are going to be controlling the message or this or that and you look around 12 years later and I think a lot of the negative uh, uh, things that have happened uh, that have been at least exacerbated by by online behavior and social media um, I think a lot of those things were unanticipated there are a lot of idealists early on that just thought you know I you could if you go back to the early days people were saying well this is going to eliminate the need for um, you know advertising or, or or all these things And CEOs uh, if you if you can't don't get a ghostwriter to blog for you because you if you're not blogging yourself and sitting down in front of a blog all day when you have a billion dollar company to run you're not being authentic i mean it kind of went from that extreme to where we've seen just this incredible incredibly kind of cynical uh takeover of, of a lot of what's what's happening online and but there's still you just it's like with anything you know you pick your pick your places and there's cycles people. and periods and chapters ci- and, and also and you else. always there's always enough people out there to choose yes. who you want to work with as clients to choose who you want to work with as colleagues who you want to hang out with so but you've got to
0: create that you've got to create that environment where you yeah. have where you have choice by having abundance by working hard and doing all the things to be a leader in what you're doing otherwise that you, you can live in a world of scarcity where then you don't really either have those choices or perceive you have those choices
1: exactly well you have to know what you want and uh, a lot of people don't I mean okay. I think that's the reality
0: because they have to ask the question because usually people are asking the how question instead of the why
1: right and and times a lot of times you know people will think um, they want to get to uh, they want to get to C and they don't know what the a and B is um, if I yes. have this then I'll be happy well. Not necessarily, you can go get that thing, but did it work? You know, um, a lot of times people don't know, you know, what what's what's I know I wanted this, which ultimately people want to be happy, feel happy, they want fulfillment, they want to feel like their life has meaning.
0: But, but often a, they're not the, chasing that, they're actually not, they're not chasing, but they're not actually putting it out there, they're looking at a material trajectory, because in they're order seeing, a, to they're create seeing it. a relationship
1: between the two. Yes. Um, and you know, every study, every study says there is not. That relationship doesn't exist beyond a subsistence level obviously the the people that are suffering the most and the least happy are the people that are in poverty that aren't um, just have to worry day to day if they have enough to get by but once you get much above that level there's just no correlation between wealth and happiness so I, I just think that's just an example of it's a stereotype, but when I came to Dallas, I felt like, gosh, a lot of people seem to be making this correlation.
0: <laughs> so, how did you pick? How did you pick Dallas out of all the places? Because obviously, well, oh, they really- gave me a job. That's why. Okay. Yeah, I, guess I mean, me a job.
1: well, I have a lot of family here, and a lot of family okay. in Dallas and Shreveport. And you know, my parents um, passed away um, some time ago, and um, really, almost all my family's in this area, and um, a very diverse group. Um, uh, We've got some some folks um, who, uh, some family in Treeport that have been uh, really prominent in in public service in Louisiana, in politics, um, and in Dallas, uh, family members who um, have, you know are just big, you know, extremely religious uh, uh, families, very conservative, and just kind of uh, just a a big mix of people who. A melting pot. Yeah, all of which you know I love dearly, and I, I like to uh, to be around them and and stuff like that. So I've always been, um, I guess uh, you know, I, I and politically I, I tend liberal, and and uh, but it's never been a problem for me, and I've actually always preferred to be in the South in places that were more conservative because I just like the interchange. I like to have a healthy dialogue. Yeah. I like to be kept in check. You know, so um, I like Dallas a lot. Um, I, I love it here. I wouldn't have stayed if I didn't.
0: How do you make the jump from journalism to going to corporate? Because that was the next big jump. So, what was your mindset like? Did, did, did journalism just run out of steam for you? Did you not see a path forward? And then, why corporate versus anything else at the time?
1: Well, um, the truth is, um, I. Uh, I had some, some you know, uh, some some real highs in, in newspaper journalism, some uh, stories I was really proud of. I love coming up with story ideas, which is the main thing I, I still do today for clients, is is coming up with a story that someone besides them is gonna care about, you know, that could be validated in the media. And then that stuff can be used in your marketing too. That's called yeah. thought leadership, yep. right? That's what we do. And I was enjoying that really from the high school yearbook on, you know, and and in journalism, I love being that, it didn't matter to me if I started working night cops and listening to the police scanner because I was coming up with story ideas that were going to, that were ending up on the front page, you know, I remember um, one time I was, uh, I I wanted to, I had, I, I had an idea for, um, doing a story on spring break in South Padre Island. This is when I first got to Dallas, and and they were like, "We're not going to pay for you to go to South Padre Island," and my friend and I wanted to go anyway, and and uh, I said, "Well, okay, that's fine, but uh, so I'll just take some vacation." I went down there, and and I just I wanted to do a story about. <laughs> it was really kind of a a. Uh, it was really kind of a mischievous kind of a, a, a idea to begin with. I, I wanted to go to the, some, some of these uh, areas of debauchery and, 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 and to talk to people about religion. Because <laughs> part of my beat was I was covering religion for the Times- Times-Herald. And I wanted to talk to them about their religious views where they're in this setting, where they're doing beer bongs and wet t-shirt contests and everything else. And uh, when I first got there, I went to, to a wet t-shirt contest, and there was a band there. Uh, there's something Louie or something. And I remember seeing the band there and so I was interviewing people, interviewed the winner of the contest. The the whole thing was kind of funny. And, um, so I was doing it all in a comical, uh, vein. And then, so the next morning we went to, there's one church, Baptist church on South Padre. I believe it's called Island Baptist Church. I'm remembering this from 30 years ago, whenever it was 25. And, um, I went, so I went, my, my buddy and I, he's mad at me. You're taking me. Or we went to South Padre. You're taking me to church. So we went to, to, this Island Baptist Church, watched the service, and you know what they do in Baptist churches? I was raised Methodist, so, but I've been to enough Baptist churches now to know, um, is at the end of the service they'll say, um, they'll, they'll call people forward if they're ready to, to accept Christ, and so, I'm just sitting there, and I, this guy walking by me and his swimsuit seriously it was the drummer from the band the drummer from the band i'd see (laughs) and so i interviewed him and you know what we did i had to go back because my vacation was over and i found out this guy i talked to the pastor of this church this guy was going to get baptized they baptized him in the water in the what is it the ocean or whatever the gulf. Um, and so I went up there, I went back to, to I wrote the, the story the way back. I got there that the, the, the city editors like, okay, first we'll pay for your trip. <laughs> so, so they retroactively paid for my vacation. And then they, they paid to sit a photographer down there to, to, to do a whole photo essay on the baptism in the water, front page, Sunday paper taking up like almost three quarters above the fold. That was, those moments were priceless, right? I mean, it, it felt like such an accomplishment. There was every aspect about it. The creativity, to feel like you're doing a public service, the feeling that you prove someone wrong, you know, that something is interesting even though they thought it wasn't. Um, that's what I loved about journalism. And why I left journalism is that there weren't enough of those moments, ultimately, compared to other things. After the Times-Herald closed, um, the truth is, you know, I ended up working for Belo, which owned the Dallas Morning News, and they're the ones that, you know, <laughs> we took, took a record ball to the, to the building of the Dallas Times Herald after, after they bought it. Um, but the Dallas Morning News didn't believe in that kind of journalism, is the truth. Never has. Um, the Dallas Times Herald took more chances. So what I just described, in a million years, couldn't have happened at the Dallas Morning News. And so I didn't want to work there. I just thought it was. They had had a, a, a editor named Burl Osborne, who was really accomplished, great guy. But he was, you know, he, I believe he'd come from AP, and was very much a. Everything needs to be done a certain way, kind yeah. of, and and the, even to the they, they had a, a strategy that they wanted all of their columnists to not be these Mike Royko, t- t- Mike R- Roy, Royko types um, that are just out there you know raging at the machine they wanted you know people who were kind of milk toast. you know kind of let's have someone who's mildly interesting and amusing but who's not going to make waves that was that was the strategy it's not an uh, offensive to it's not a, a criticism of the individual journalists and columnists because they were asked to do that job so i didn't want to work there i liked dallas so i didn't really want to move somewhere else i at that point this was 1990 in the beginning of 1992 So I already kind of saw the writing on the wall in terms of where newspapers were going. Um, So I went over to the Dallas Observer, and I worked there for a few months. Um, Just didn't like it. I I felt like it had been bought by New Times, which ultimately bought Village Voice. They've been the leader in in terms of alternative publications, but I just felt like nobody was reading it. Um, And it was kind of—I was working really hard on these stories. And I thought I did a couple of my best stories for the Dallas Observer. I thought the only people are reading this are, you know, people that are looking for a restaurant or something to go to, or they're people that are already have the same political views. So you're preaching to the choir, which like I was saying before, that's not of interest to me. That's just not of interest to me. So um, I tried to freelance for a while and honestly ended up in my first corporate job out of needing to eat <laughs> so it wasn't like a, a conscious transition to, to meet some higher level goals it was like gosh i'm really struggling to enjoy or make enough money being a freelancer so i had a friend who had left a position at uh, a financial services firm doing marketing okay. and pr for them and um when when he left, he put in a good word for me, and and that's how I started on the corporate side.
0: And obviously, you had a lot of skill sets going into that job. And so, as you're doing this job for a while, you get towards the end of it, and you realize, okay, this isn't the job for me either. And what led you then to say, "I need to leave"?
1: To leave corporate altogether. Yeah. Well, no, I was in corporate for a long time though, so it was a very it wasn't anything that happened in a short period of time. I mean. Honestly, the first year and a half uh, at this financial service firm, it was, I, I was really, I just, you go into journalism, uh, all, everything that was going on in business, I had never taken a business course. I studied history. and you know, I, mean, I just, I'm looking at this and it all seemed very absurd. You know, I, I had no idea why people were working in a corporate setting at all. I mean, I was looking at it like, like, like a Dilbert kind of thing. I just did not get it at all. And so I had to say, well, do I want to go back to journalism, or do I want to find my place here, you know? Um, and so after this financial services firm, I went to a, a company in B2B tech uh, called Pagenet, back when there was a paging industry, wireless wireless communications. And they did the infrastructure, and and um, uh, that that's where I started to find a place for myself. They sent me to... SMU for Business School, which really helped round me out and and make me feel more comfortable and to understand how all the uh, parts fit together in a business, from IT to accounting and finance and and being able to speak everyone's language to some degree. I think the MBA really helped with that. But um, after that, I went went to BELO, and I was VP of Corporate Communications there. I worked there for three years. But... um, I just um, realized that um, it, it was, I had a chronic challenge with um, uh, all, the, all the pieces coming together in these corporate jobs. In other words, um, uh, as I was telling you when we were talking before, um, I, I just felt like, I, I just had this moment when I was looking at moving from b to another role, um, all the things that would have to work out. You know, you have to like the industry. You have to um, like um, the work you're going to do. You have to have a story to tell in PR, anyway, and writing for a company. Uh, you have to like your boss. You have to get along with your colleagues um, and the CEO and other 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 players. Um, the culture overall, it's really hard to, to It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, to to make all those pieces. Uh, fit at least that—that's what I was finding. Because and even I, if they do
0: fit together at one moment, they, they can, can change. W- change. and if one of those pieces changes, it can set everything in a different trajectory and how you view it, which is the challenge of working in a corporate setting.
1: Yeah, you know, any or just working for somebody else in general can that's be like true. that. And uh, you know, like at, at PageNet, I was there for six years, and uh, they had three very different regimes during that six years with three different CEOs. Um, and, you know, the first CEO, I was enjoying it there. The second CEO, everything changed a lot. I was looking, ended up not taking anything. And then, then another CEO came in. He's the one who sent me to get the MBA. And it was just totally... But ultimately, yeah, in, in a sense, you're, a lot of things are in someone else's hands. And I think why a lot of people end up going out on their own, becoming an entrepreneur, is they want to have more
0: control over those things. Did you have any mentors through this period of time in your life up to, you know, from growing up till, you know, where you were at, you know, when you decided to leave the corporate setting? Did you have any people, someone that you went to to get advice from or to bounce ideas off of from or were modeling after or something?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I I had known some people that were contractors or freelancers. But no one who had who had started an agency or anything, um, you know, I knew that my like my dad was an architect, but he worked for a small architecture firm, and he would just come home and just so exasperated about his boss and stuff, and he was always going to be like, "I'm going to buy him out," or you know, you know. So I saw that, but but he was never able to do that, and and he uh, did that as a very. On you? In retrospect, yeah. He was like, a very shy person and extremely introverted, uh, painfully so. Very smart and talented as an architect. Um, but, but you know, he could never sell or some of the other things you need to do in business. So it probably made, uh, I think I'm, I, I know I'm I'm naturally introverted
0: as well, but I... I do you have extroverted tendencies then, though? More? Um... Or do you do that no, out of... No. I, I do it because... You, you have to?
1: I've learned to do it because it helped me to get things that I wanted in life uh, in terms of things that I enjoy doing. You, you have, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? And um, early on, for example, in corporate jobs, I was you know, a very good writer. Um, I loved writing, but I realized that only gets you so far in, far in a corporate job. You're setting a low ceiling for yourself. So you have to be able to
0: persuade people. Do you have any advice for people that are introverted that like when it comes to things like that because a lot of times people who are introverted believe that, you know, asking for things and, you know, taking on some extroverted tendencies at times is really outside their comfort zone and something that they don't want to do, don't know how to do. So what advice I, I would you give to someone Who's in a situation like that? Who you know feels like their voice isn't being heard, or they're not able to really express themselves.
1: Well, I think there's a difference between being you know uh, introverted and being you know painfully shy or, or awkwardly shy. Because um, I've been both, and I know okay. the difference. I, the best definition I've heard of introvert versus extrovert is that an introvert is someone who. They go to a party or they go networking. They go do this. And they can go and do a great job uh, of, of doing what they're trying to do at that in that setting. But then when they leave, they're exhausted. <laughs> it yes. completely exhausts them. And the extrovert does that. And they come out. They're like, what? what do we do next? Because they were so pumped up. It gave them energy. Whereas with an intro- introvert, it takes your energy. Yes. So, um, And I understand that about myself. So I just need... Uh, Time to recharge, you know, what I do, one thing that I do every day, just about, is I go to lunch by myself and just recharge. I've got four kids, nine and under. Um, so I've got family, business, uh, people have needs, I'm talking to people and trying to help solve problems and things here. Um, but if I don't have that time to recharge, I'm gonna be, you know, useless to to everyone. I mean, I, I'm literally, it was always the kind of person who could spend a whole weekend by myself and have a great time, you know, just go biking, watch a movie, and I was completely fine with that. So to be, have found myself in this situation, which I love, of having a family and yep. this business and everything, I, I just have to remember that I will not be able to do it if I don't because carve, managing your time... If I don't carve out time with, is important. Carve with out myself, it's like my wife needs to go out with her friends, and I'm like, you do that. I need to just be completely by
0: myself for this period of time, <laughs> or, or I will have a meltdown. Um, and it's communicating with those around you that you need that, yeah. right? not just doing it. It's also telling people that it's a requirement for me um, in my life in order to be successful and happy is to carve out some time where I have to spend it by myself, not because I don't want to be around you, but that's just who I am.
1: Right. So I would say in terms of being introverted, you can be, I would say we've got an agency where most of the people are introverts. And you don't think of that with PR, but we've got a lot of people who are really smart and into B2B tech, and and they're... Most of our leaders are, I would say, introverts, um, but they're not painfully shy. They've learned to do what they need to do in business and in communications to be effective. Um, so that's a different challenge. So I would say for someone who's painfully shy, so I had tremendous fear of speaking. Okay. Um, where?
0: how do you move beyond that then?
1: Uh, first with medication, <laughs> seriously. Okay. No, seriously, I, I literally, when I started, I started getting asked to speak back when, well, a little bit when I was at PageNet um, because wireless had taken off so much, but mostly when I started my blog, um, I would get asked to speak at these events, and literally it was one of those things where your your heart is coming out of your chest. You've got all these physical symptoms. You can't think about anything else. You cannot think straight because of this, and so my doctor told me about beta blockers, which are something, these little pills you can take. Yep. Propranolol, it's t- tongue twister. I mean, it's generic, it costs 10 bucks, at the pharmacy, right, and and um, so I would just pop one before I spoke, and, and it calms all those physical symptoms and um, and allowed me to not do great, but at least be able to think straight so I could go through, and I'd still be reading too much and all these things that bad speakers do, but at least I could get through it, and then from that point, I think it was repetition. To where a certain point, I didn't need the beta blockers anymore. Um, I'd done it enough that I felt comfortable with it. So I think ultimately, where I've like the advice that I would give people, there's thing I've I've sent people to groups like Toastmasters and these kind of groups that will help you. Uh, Communispond is a group uh, that I think is still around that that I've done and 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 had people do. Um, Uh, training with on speaking and communications and things Um, but ultimately for me um, and why just for me personally it's much easier to start a business at this stage in my life rather than earlier is I'm someone who really needs to feel mastery over things before I can speak confidently about them not everyone's like that I'm not saying that's ideal I don't think you should need that. To that, that's a pretty high bar. I'm also not saying that I, I know everything because I'm constantly learning uh, and realizing things that I need to learn. But there's I've, over time, particularly for the things that we do as an agency, um, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I know a lot, and and because of that, um, it's it's been like you know a lot of this stuff. Why aren't you sharing it? And, and particularly when you get out of this corporate um, uh, setting where you know, you're know you going to make a recommendation to the CEO and you're like, uh, is he going to get mad and fire me or whatever? I have the freedom, since I'm a consultant and I have an agency, I, it's like you came to me for advice. Yes. And if the advice is what you're doing is all wrong, um, and I think it's a terrible idea what you want to do, and this is what you need to do, and here's why, you know. Being in this environment gives gives me the freedom to do that. And I feel like I'm not doing... I always hated when I was on the corporate side, when I had, had agencies, I, it, was, it was just like going to to the, a psychologist, you know, the person from the agency, I'd say, what do you think about this? Uh, and they say, well, what do you think? You <laughs> it's know, like, it's like, what do you think we should do? Well, what do you think we should do? You know, because it was always like, hmm, I'm just going to tell you what I think is going to get us our retainer for one more month, as opposed to... You know what? I'm going to tell you what I think is best for you. And if you don't like it, I'm going to tell you where I think you're wrong. If you don't like it, well, okay. But isn't we that the glue that
0: builds great relationships? Should that trust? Yeah. Right, because it's trust and authenticity um, because that's what people want the most, right? I mean, that's otherwise you're not giving really someone.
1: They say they want counsel. it, but,
0: but some clients don't want it. Well, it's you true. Know?
1: And if clients don't want it, then I'll do one of two things. You know, we'll just put some junior people on in the relationship and have them just do some tactical implementation or we'll cut ties all together because what what we do and what we do as a group with the full breadth of everyone we have here, is we've assembled a lot of talent and expertise that you're, that is being wasted if you're looking for arms and legs. We charge too much to be arms and legs for anybody. So if you're not going to listen to our advice, and by the way, we don't just of just it doesn't come off the cuff. we do we have a methodology to do lots of research with your buyers methodology for, for research within your industry and of your competitors and it works you know And
0: uh, but that but builds I, raising that builds your clients as raving fans which then is much easier to get more clients over time because they're huge advocates for you and especially if someone decides to do a client reference they're getting people that are much more excited about you and telling a story which is way different than someone who's just telling someone else what they want to hear, right? Yeah,
1: no, exactly. In a, in a much more
0: deep, uh, passionate story about someone. And so that actually then allows you t- to be way more successful in the people here to be able to find their own purpose and their own passion and determination because they're working for people where that's something that matters.
1: Right, right. And, and if you don't do it that way... And insist on having that higher strategic value, you become a time and material shop, you know, and you're 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 putting a low ceiling on what you what your value is
0: because you don't have boundaries. yeah. so getting back to the the shyness, so a lot of it's just you just had to force yourself to do these things even though you didn't want to do them in order to get better. And that's someone who's shy that's going to, have to do. They're gonna to have to do the things they don't want to do and do them however long that's necessary for them to get over the hurdle. Absolutely. And the more it resists, it Absolutely. will persist.
1: Especially today. Like I think about you know what my dad could have achieved with all his talents and abilities if he had, hadn't been hindered so much by his shyness. Um, and why do you but, think but that think he didn't why do
0: you think that he didn't take the steps that you ended up taking, right? Because I think that's important for people because we're trying to share mastery on here and it's, you know, your dad obviously was a smart person and he was successful, but where you took shyness and then just took it head on and said, I'm, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this because I need to. He didn't. And in a sense, that was wasted talent.
1: I don't know. And maybe just didn't have... Um, I think it was a different era. I think it's it's easier now to self-diagnose an issue and to, and to try to tackle it than it was back like in the 70s when he was... I mean, I, you know, you didn't have I think the sources of information, you know, even Maybe if you even if you're, Yeah, I, I don't think he did. I, I think that uh, um, today, um, you know, if you... Also, I think today, hit beyond his situation, you know, um, today increasingly, you have to have powers of persuasion to be successful. You know, in a, at a level beyond what was the case back then. I'll, I'll give you one example, which is, um, one client I worked with uh, early on uh, when I started was a, a, uh, a historic photography agency out of New York called Black Star. They, they brought, uh, interesting digression is that Life Magazine, you know, I may recall, uh, was famous for its photojournalism from the 1930s and 40s. Um, What a lot of people don't know is this great photojournalism. If you have any of these old Life Magazine coffee table books, I mean, there's been nothing like that. It was a golden era of photojournalism. Most of that, or much of that photography, was was done by German Jews who had uh, fled Germany. Because the first, the precursor to, um, to Life magazine uh, was, were some uh, photojournalism magazines and publications that were coming up in Germany, produced by German Jews, and they fled. And they brought that to, um, to the U.S. But they couldn't go to Life magazine and ask for a job because they couldn't speak English. And so, Mike, I had a client that's been around since 1935, called Black Star, and they translated. They literally had some businessmen who were uh, Jewish who could speak uh, German and English, and you know, uh, they were an intermediary. They they and they were the first big photo agency, and supplying uh, Life Magazine and all the big news outlets back in the day with just great photography. Well, in any case. That, that, that's been family-owned for decades and decades and decades. Uh, obviously, a lot has changed. They've gone through different modes and different ways of just kind of re- recreating themselves. But back in 2006, they, I guess um, one of the execs there was was reading my blog and contacted me and wanted me to create a blog for them. And, and we conceived it as a, a guest blog where photographers would be solicited to write for it. And all of that brings me back to the original point, which was all of these, it was a time when all of these newspaper photographers who had been in these kind of comfy staff photographer positions, in a matter of two or three years, they all lost their jobs. I mean, newspapers and magazines, they, I mean, staff photographers, that that became an endangered species in a very short period of time. All these photographers are like, oh, I just like to take pictures. I don't want to. I'm not a business person. Well, suddenly they're on the street and they're like, how do I make a living? And there was no other job for them. So what this blog ended up being about, principally, was how to make it. You know, In other words, you had to have these powers of persuasion. You had to be, uh, go become a wedding photographer, how to do that, how to go get business that way, or whatever other paths it was going to require you to not just wait for someone to say, Here's your assignment, go take this picture, because that was that model had exploded. And I just think in general, if you look at sector by sector by sector of the economy, um, whether you're a writer or whatever you are, you just can't expect to go find a job somewhere and blend in, blend into the woodwork. I mean you have to be an advocate for yourself and often you have to go out and get so what your own So you, what own would business. you recommend
0: as like the maybe top couple things when it comes to being persuasive that people would need to keep in mind or to try to master or learn?
1: Well I think there's different ways of going about it. Um, I was watching uh, The Founder last night. Have you seen that? The Ray Kroc story? Yes. And you know that's one way to go about it. <laughs> Ray Kroc for those who don't know. Was, he was very persuasive, right? Um, he was a very dishonest business person. He, he screwed out. The McDonald's. Screw, he screwed fire. over. Yeah, Ray Kroc was the person who found the original McDonald's restaurant, which is, was created by uh, two brothers, uh, Mac and I think Jim McDonald, and, I think maybe, uh, and, and they uh, came up with this uh, kind of conveyor belt system, and that none of that had existed before. And He came in and took it, and as a great salesperson of the time blew it out and then he but he ultimately ended up swindling these guys and, and stealing the mcdonald's and, and even their name out from under them they couldn't even use their own name in the restaurant after that um so it was a story of kind of a ruthless you know your ruthless capitalist ruthless business person but um and he was obviously able to persuade but that doesn't work for me i, I mean i uh, i feel like you persuade with knowledge and 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 uh, honesty, you know, transparency. I mean, I, I don't... I, I know there's there's all kinds of different ways to persuade. So what I do you mean by knowledge?
0: Do you mean that you need I, to master...
1: I mean, you reasons? need to know what you're talking about. You know, because people are pretty good about spotting when someone's folded. Not always, <laughs> as we've learned. But um, I, I think that... Um, I, I think that being confident, but... About confident what you know, to. confident about about what you know, honest about what you don't, and um, and just being direct with people, but not in a, a way that's ever insulting or hurtful or condescending. I don't know. It's just kind of a uh, to me. I didn't have a magic formula for it. it. It's just something that I kind of learned over time because I uh, I started out in a reporting. Uh, role where you had to to get information out of people but sometimes it was confrontational and sometimes because of the nature of the job you felt a little manipulative those are some things i didn't really like about being a newspaper reporter um, anyway over time i've just found a, a style that worked for me but I, I would say that i i tried what people have told me because i end up being i end up basically being the salesperson for idea growth most of the time i've had help from folks here from time to time but never a full-time person that just does that um and i'm not a naturally good salesperson because you know i'm kind of all over the map but um they sense a natural enthusiasm so i think you need enthusiasm too but i think people can usually tell when it's real you know as opposed to rehearsed or i'm just showing this enthusiasm because i'm enthusiastic about getting your money no, I'm enthusiastic enthusiastic about this, just what we're doing and how it can help you. Or in our case, um, since we, are, we work in B2B tech, and a lot of these industries are very complex, and even people that work at these companies a lot of times think they're boring. And honestly, I, I, I love, it's kind of like the, the spring break story I was telling you. I love when someone tells me their industry is boring or that what they do is boring to show them it's not. And when I start talk, a lot of times I'll just start talking with a company, and 80% of the conversation will be asking them about them. And I'll find something in there, or someone else here on the team, find something in there that just is fascinating to me. And I just start probing on that. And sometimes it's something they've just never even thought about. And they realize, oh, you're already doing what you're saying you're going to do for us, which is to find those compelling stories and narratives and and then go blow them out and go tell people um so that uh, that's that's kind of just kind of that combination key, right so in the
0: being persuasive for you is you know having knowledge about it really understanding it um being able to be on- honest with people um and then create and enth- be enthusiastic about it and all that underlies is building trust with someone so you can really be direct Um, and have a real conversation and that's I think that's what they want in business And I think the other part which you mentioned is the listening part is so important that's what people don't do because that builds a lot of likability and also people don't listen because they're too busy talking and then you can't really help people because you don't understand them where they're coming from you can't show empathy and in a situation like that you can do both right because you can pull out the nuggets and that came from all of your history of storytelling of putting all these stories together of being inquisitive. So that's like a natural strength. So if you can get in there and listen, I mean, that's when you shine the most and you've been training your whole life at that point when you get that level of, of interaction.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's the whole thing that, you know, they talk about people who, who, who are just, they're not listening. There's waiting for their chance to talk. And, and so I, I, I and we all fall into that. I'm guilty of it sometimes. Everybody is. But, you know, it's, it's something I try to help the, the kids with because kids naturally do that. But a funny thing happened last night, and my wife got so mad because my uh, daughter tell them, tell telling her a little bit. But, uh, you know, we had our, our uh, the nanny who helps us was uh, going through some stuff and car trouble and different things. And, and so Mary was going through uh, the whole story with, with my daughter. uh, uh about, you know this and the car and this and and then Juliet is listening to all this like she's listening. And then she says, "Well, am I going to get to dance practice tomorrow?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, wait a minute, you just got this whole story about all this stuff that Nanny's having to deal with, and your response is, "Well, is she gonna take me to dance practice or not?" You know, and I think people are like that. You know, you don't have to be nine to be to make that mistake. You know, yes. it happens all the time. Am I getting dance? What about me?
0: So. Getting back to Sterling. Am I facing? What am I doing?
1: Business. I Oh. No. oh. Um, I'm to cut for just a second. Okay. Okay.
0: change my battery.
1: Okay. I didn't ask you. Uh, I guess it didn't matter. It, 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 looking at you versus looking at the camera doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. It's conversation. Okay. I mean, it's okay. fine. I've been just trying to follow your lead a little bit. by yeah. Looking at you.
0: Then I'll just parse that.
1: Well, I know this is just kind of random in a lot of directions. This is this helpful?
0: Well, I think we're going – now I'm going to go back to the agency. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes when we go on these things, it's just easier to riff where we're at the moment and go and then mm-hmm. pull it back and go. Because then I'm losing the moment, and then um, it, that's part of this is trying to get out nuggets of your mastery of what's going on and then tell sort of the story arc so people can understand all the other things that go into this. So I, right. it kind of just moves around, okay. but it's – easy enough for people to get through on this process and have it this is a natural progression of going through it so we're going to how long are these typically you know i've really started to model off of the people that have done the best job out of these things Mm -hmm. and what i find is that if you if i'm interviewing an expert on something so would mean i'm interviewing someone on you're a persuasion expert right like a person would be you know, those you can probably get done in more 45 minutes because you're really interested in the person. But I found the people that do the best job interviewing these things anywhere, usually from almost an hour mm-hmm. to hour and 20, hour and 30. And really? If they go more, I would cut it up into. two. Well, because... I, this it, is for people with very long commutes. Uh, <laughs> you know what? The I've never been a podcast listener. I've got to But confess, you know what I am? So and, and I found I that it's a waste of time if I listen to ones that really short ones interesting because i can't get any information because it's hard for i think it's hard because if i don't know part of where you came from Mm -hmm. i I then can't connect the dots like okay you were really good at storytelling because you've been doing it all your life so it's a practice that you have mastered it Mm -hmm. isn't something that you just decided to figure out and when you don't go through that I don't think people can really connect all this stuff. And so I think there is a time element. But what I'm going to do on there for people is I'm doing a video because some people rather watch it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they can pull off the audio on iTunes, and I'm going to get these transcribed as well. Cool. So then the people that first listen to this – They'll be able to skim part of it, and mm-hmm. I don't expect them to listen to a lot of this stuff or watch it. But if they read it and they see there's interesting nuggets in there, then they're going to uh, like want to watch and do it. And I'm gonna, mm-hmm. and instead of getting people writing the show notes in the beginning, I'm gonna write all the show notes and do everything myself. And, like, I'll probably someone edit it, but I want to do that because I can put down all the things that I need to get down in here and, and think it through, so mm-hmm. I can do a better job in highlighting. And I'm gonna be, I'll be putting in like a lot of stuff you links and all the stuff for all the people that you drop and it's a pretty cool you know and then all your contact information and stuff like this and i may pull out other stuff like i love that little agency thing that you did about like if you have the wrong agency or to hire the right agency i know i think yeah i I, I actually thought that's what i put in there i thought i really think that probably, maybe there's some tweaking, but I almost think you should rerun that. I think... Well, yeah, I was thinking about... It. Well, see, that I reason, was... That's reason when I saw that. That's the reason why I put it um, at the bottom. Yeah. Because I just thought, um, there were other stuff, too, but somehow or another, when I was reading through a lot of the stuff that you've been doing, I was like, for somehow or another... I love the happiness one that you did, uh, the oh, yeah. one, too. Hmm. Um, you know, that would probably be up there with number two. That would probably mm-hmm. be number two one. I, I think probably... Whatever tweaking you want, but I think that would be a cool thing to rerun. To well, them. you
1: know, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the 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 Are You With the Right Agency one was um, that originally went on, on the site in 2005 when I first launched it, on this little HTML site. And uh, it was an interactive quiz, just a true false quiz. And then at the end, you get a score based on oh, that would this be quiz. Awesome. And and then as we redone the site a few times, it fell by the wayside at some point. Um, I think you should. I think you should put it. On. I just thought it had gotten. Some of the questions were maybe too dated. I haven't
0: looked well, at it. me yet. Yeah, so it needs a, It needs an update. And need, I haven't gotten around needs, to doing it. It, it. it would, it would need to be an update, right? I yes, but I just thought it's really helpful, and I think there's a tremendous value add, and maybe I would even pitch this out to someone like PR League or mm. IBC mm-hmm. after you redo it.
1: Yeah because i think
0: that's a great value add and i think you get a lot of people to take a look at it if you get it on that type of site i would pitch that thing out and make something or have someone else here help on the front end and back end and you just like do the nuance and the questions Mm -hmm. Um, I think you could probably get someone like someone else to run that thing mm-hmm. and it would get a lot of people because people don't know how to pick them and they're always asking like, how do you pick an agency? Like, what do you need to I mean, you can Just think about yourself and not a client. Like, I bet if you ask all their clients, like, they don't know what to do and that's a great uh, primer for someone to use that's simple it's not overly complex of saying well you need to interview them for expertise well it's an easy way to go through a check and that's what people want right
1: mm-hmm. no you're right you're right I you should i need to i, need I mean to i just i've been I mean, we've been doing uh, quizzes as as content for a lot of our or assessments you know where you take a test
0: i mean yeah, for a lot of our
1: clients well we've been doing it for a lot of clients so we could use that same tool to do that for us i should do it
0: i think so that one's right? just one of the ones mm-hmm. that really popped out that i thought wow like you could really get a, and that could probably drive business because mm-hmm. if you did it in some Publication, or maybe it's not even a PR publication. Maybe it's something completely different that you try to do, to like Huffington Post or something like that. Might even be better to pitch it out somewhere. Because I, I think it's—I mean, I really haven't seen anything like that. And although you think, oh geez, someone's probably done it, I bet if you look, it's probably maybe someone has. But really not many. That's giving you a quiz. Just well, something. That...
1: For, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate. It. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a
0: good idea. Right? You ready? Yeah. Okay. Tell us to count it down and or what we need to do. Five, four, three, two, one, action. So I want to get back to talking about how you started this agency because it's easy to look at you now, having a big agency, really successful. But you started this basically out of your basement in your house. I mean, you didn't have any clients to start with. So how did this whole genesis come about? And also, it was being an entrepreneur, and how did you like figure out that you wanted to do that because it didn't sound like you'd you know before not really been an entrepreneur i mean i guess in some sense it's being a journalist you're having to investigate and getting a foray into ground, but not is in starting a business
1: yeah um honestly I, I the truth is i just kind of fell into it a little bit because um so i having not ever worked at an agency i didn't know what it what to expect, what it was like, except for being on the corporate side and having agencies that I work with. Mm-hmm. I had an agency in Dallas that uh, was my annual uh, report uh, vendor at Belo and did some other design work for us called Eisenberg Associates. That's still around. Arthur Eisenberg and, uh, uh, and uh, Rob Huckles, uh, who later came to work with me in, at Idea Grove. Um, Amy Miller, who we just brought on as... Uh, okay. uh, our digital account director started out at Eisenberg. Um, when I left, um, they were kind of my own my thread to kind of get started. So um, I didn't really know how to get started. I just knew that I wanted to try something else. I didn't want to just go look for another corporate job. I decided to not try to look and to just uh, other things happened. You know, the tail end at, at below. My uh, mom got sick and passed away. So, I was in Virginia for over a month, just being with her. That's one of those situations where you take stock, of course. Um, think about your mortality.
0: You look at your own mortality in a, in what's a new way. and what's a important? Think about a lot of things.
1: Yeah. and um, what
0: conclusions um, did you come to at that all these things happening at once? Because often it's a confluence moments. Or hitting a rock bottom that starts us on a, on a new trajectory and a new path. What, what was going through your head and what emotions were you feeling? that? To-
1: hmm. Well, you know, um, anyone whose mother's passed away, there's there's nothing quite like that. Um, we we all go through it at some point. Um, and um, I think, um, I guess you are... Um, or, or it just puts you in a, a more, uh, not everyone reacts obviously the same way to everything, but it uh, put you in a more open place to not staying in the same patterns that you were in or doing the same things you were doing. So, and I also didn't feel like I wanted, I was ready to, uh, I think when after that, I didn't feel this urgency that I have to get a bunch of clients right away or all that and, and financially it that wasn't great because I was going through savings but I I just didn't feel mentally or emotionally right I kind of wanted to not be working mm-hmm. or uh, at that point and um, so I kinda, it kind of gave me space to to think and to do that um, and so um, i kind of took my time with that a little bit um and let things come to me that's kind of been my story in a lot of ways is letting things come to me and um so eisenberg you know uh i told them hey i'm around they knew i did all the writing when we worked together so they said would you like to do some be a contract for us do some writing so i wrote uh just wrote for a couple clients um one of those clients uh bank tech which is still around and worked with us on and off for many years, uh, was bought recently by a company called Source HV. They're a BPO company. Um, they contact me about doing PR for them because um, they really liked the... We hadn't worked before at all. They didn't. I didn't know anybody there, but they really liked the writing I had done on this project for Eisenberg. It led to my first PR retainer PR and writing retainer. I was doing PR. Most of my clients I would do PR and or write their And writing. you led with
0: your strength at that time doing being copywriting right. because right because it was your strength. So that was actually naturally ideal because you got to show who you were and express yourself with what a talent that you had mastered for a long time.
1: And I tied that to something greater which is substance because one of the things that drove me crazy about agencies is they didn't ever ever learn your business well enough to write about it well. And I hated that. I hated that literally every agency I ever worked with, including some that I really liked, and I have good friends from them, but they never were able, with their business models or whatever, I always took the writing back myself. I, I just said, you go pitch, because um, I didn't think it wasn't up to what I thought it needed to be. And, and so the, the first stake in the ground I think I had in terms of what I wanted to do is I wasn't going to take a client if I wasn't doing their writing. So from bank tech, from the beginning, I was doing their PR, but I was writing their white papers. I was writing their sales kits. I was doing this for them because I saw how those things fit together. Yes. The storytelling and what you take to the media. Uh, and and I think that I've never been, it's never been my favorite thing to pitch to the media. But I always thought, everyone talks and you know, thinks has thought PR is about who you take to lunch and who you schmooze with i thought it was about who you go to a story with you know i had a lot of relationships with journalism because i was one but the first day, time you go to a friend of yours and pitch them a crappy story they're going to feel like you're taking advantage yes of it. so it, and, and if you pitch a good story to someone who doesn't know you they're going to get to know you right so I, that's what again I, I just led with that what i like doing um And it led from, and then about that same time, in February of 2005, right after I started, I started my blog. And literally within six months, I was getting leads, business leads through the blog. Um, It would be a little bit here and there. Uh, You know, uh, early clients, I might be getting two grand a month from a plastic surgeon or this or that. Um, But little by little, you know, I got up to um, a a good, just a good living uh, that was, I was making as much or more in my executive job at B below. Um, very happy doing that. Um, I did that for five years um, just working uh, actually it was a, we had a one and a half story house and the top half story was my office and, uh, and that's why I did that for five years like that. and um, I just at a certain point, decided, you know, gosh, I I really have enjoyed this, but I'm kind of maxed out. I'm spending as many hours as a day as I can doing this. And because it's just me, I'm having to do it all myself. And so, do I want to be doing this in another another 10 years? It might get a little boring, and I've kind of topped out, I think, in terms of what I can charge for this. Uh, Unless I wanted to take myself to a place of just being some high-level consultant, you know. I like doing the work, though. I always like doing the work. So, uh, I met my uh, with my friend Rob Huckles from Eisenberg days, and you know we basically partnered up. I brought him in to help me uh, take Idea Grove to the next level, where we could open an office and start to hire people and stuff. Because his his expertise was in operations and. New business development, managing people, and I wanted to focus on the work and the business model, and which is a great
0: separation because mm-hmm. a lot of times when people partner, they partner for the wrong reasons, they don't partner someone with complementary strengths, right? And you found yeah. someone that actually that had the strengths that you didn't have, uh, and then you could focus on yours, and he could focus on what he was doing, and then you could end up growing this business successfully. And there was, you know, there's always overlap at some level, but you know, there's probably seems like very little on where your core expertise was going to lie.
1: Right. It's like um, and that's that's those are opportunities that come up um, that you you have to to identify and grasp. I don't know if I hadn't recognized that because he had he had just gotten out of a, a, a job and he was thinking about going out in his own. I said, you know what? As you said, we've got complementary skills. I also saw just as I was doing PR and content together, and I've always done that, I saw the visual and web design integrating with that and that was his background from eisenberg they were a design firm so that's where for that uh, integration
0: But also a well. relationship too i think the, the key piece of that is you've got to start building these relationships um today because you never know where they're going to bear fruit and it's sort of like i told people it's like johnny appleseed you've got to lay down a lot of seeds because you don't know which one's going to sprout into a big tree but at some point it will right and that's yeah. what happened right if you wouldn't have met him and spent the time with him that opportunity and having him there wouldn't have been because he wouldn't have been around or trusted you enough to take that leap of faith in order to deal with you
1: right no that's true um so yeah so that's that's kind of how uh we we you know we got started and it just, did you ever, just started did you ever get any,
0: take outside money or was this all bootstrapped from
1: no i never did in fact to this day uh we've never done any outbound marketing of any kind um, so we've never spent a dollar on advertising or, or anything. Um, so all the growth has been, you talk about eating your own dog food. I mean, every bit of business we've ever gotten has been either through referral or through people finding us online, through on search, online visibility.
0: Um, it's been either through online marketing slash PR, wherever you want to, you know, mm-hmm. and, and non-paid. Well, from what happened just by accident, I'd love to
1: just say it was all planned, but when uh, there was a period of time in 2005 2006 when my blog was pretty popular it was popular popular among other pr people and marketers who were blogging at the time mostly and and just kind of trying out this new thing and trying to feel out feel the potential of it you know so i became really good friends with people like todd Defferin, who uh had bought and really blew out uh, shift communications um that that was recently bought last year um very successful agency, and he had just come up with he came up with this thing that got him on the map, about the social media press release, and and just different things like that. So it was all it was kind of petri dish kind of thing. It was fun, and but the, the blog got popular, and as a result, um, if you started searching for things like uh, Dallas PR firms and things, Idea I Grove just popped up at the top of the list over all the big agencies in town, and I started getting calls, and I probably. I knew enough to, to, you know, to slap title tags on my homepage that said Dallas PR firm and things like that, but a lot of it just happened naturally from producing content that was getting links. Because we were getting links from, you know, uh, Gawker, Huffington Post, uh, you know, Time. I, I mean, I literally, it was it was early days, and the blog was
0: popular. So what do those- you think about blogging today? Because I think that's a question probably some people may be thinking about, you know, what's... How do you feel about blogging today versus back then?
1: Well, I don't uh, blog much at all anymore just because I'm so busy doing other things. Um, But I do think blogs are uh, important. But uh, I think it's very important to be uh, focused and know your audience and focus on, on them and trying to be as... Specific as possible in what you're trying to do with your blog and use all your mechanisms to, to get your audience to that content that's going to be very relevant to them. Preferably not only extremely relevant, hyper-relevant. Um, we tell all our clients, you know, get as focused as possible on who you're going after. You do not have to go with, with, you know, if someone asks you what your target vertical is, do not say all of them. You know, pick one, pick one. Uh, Pick two. Uh, Don't pick six, you know, Um, because it's just not going to work unless you're a really, really big company with a massive marketing budget. Um, So pick your battles. Pick where you're going to focus. And then if you can do things, like it's really easy to use. um, There are are organizations that uh, I'm not talking about um, SurveyMonkey or something. I'm talking about... um, organizations that you can do panel surveys to to come up with stories that are data-based because there's so much content out there yes biggest problem with blogging is is a bunch of useless crap out there right there's literally millions of articles and you don't want to be part of that um six tips to blah 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 or the three biggest mistakes and how to avoid them and how many times have people seen all these now Um, dig into your subject matter in, in a level of detail where those that small group of people, uh, in many cases, that's the case mm-hmm. in B2B tech, that that are interested in that, will come back, and if and then if you will just invest a little bit in having some original data and some things to give that content value beyond this is what I think, then then you're gonna you'll get traction. So I think blogging is is very valuable. But I would say, I, it's very difficult with a blog to. Uh, do what you could do 10 years ago just because it's so heavily saturated so what everyone needs to be doing is looking at uh the next thing um
0: and what is what, what is the next thing right now for people to do you know especially in b2b you know communications or technology where where is the next forefront that's really opening up that people should start looking in Testing in, trying out.
1: Well, I think it's different for for different businesses. I'll, I'll just give you an example or two. But but so for us overall, I'd say the biggest single change is is uh, we're, we integrate visual into everything. So when we design a site, whatever we do, uh, our content folks and our creatives, it's it's like you know, Lennon McCartney. It's it's words and music, and it, it really has to be collaborative. That the, you can't just throw a bunch of stock images out there. You know, you have to have meaningful imagery animation video that to connect because it's going away from words. You know, your words have to be you have to be very concise in your choice of words and purposeful in a way that I don't think had to be before uh in the same way. And so, I think just this kind of embracing all of it to tell your story has been a huge trend. But but I was going to say that in the same way that you could say, you know, that this the blogging is is saturated. Um, you could say obviously the same thing about email marketing. So to use that example, um, email open rates are, are not what they used to be. They're not today on average what they were a year ago, and a year ago they weren't what they were two years ago. So you have to look at that. That doesn't mean you stop doing email marketing. You just have to realize that as an arrow in your quipper, it's not as powerful as it was. More and more people are, are using messaging to communicate rather than email. Um, so whether that's um, I mean, take your pick in terms of uh, the, the, all the different messaging from from Snapchat to um, um, tools for that are being used in uh, uh, business.'re um, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're it, it's the, the percent the amount of communications that's happening in that way uh, versus through email, it, that's the shift. So, I think right now there's huge opportunity for um, uh, marketers to figure out how to get in there. Because if you can get in there early, before everyone's figured it out, you're going to have that first mover or early mover advantage. And so I just think every new thing that comes out, there's so many that, right, that's the challenge and you can, you can you can make a, a bad choice. Uh, that's why everyone wants to stick to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, right? But, and a lot of companies invested big in Google Plus, and now they're thinking, why did I invest a lot of Google Plus, for example? Right. Well, that's just part of the deal. I, I made lots of bad investments. I didn't have a ton of money to invest, but when I was trying to figure out, like, <clears throat> I'll just give you one example. I was very late to Twitter. Uh, either using myself or using I say very late I, I, I got on in 2008 but for me uh, I think that's what it was it, it all my all the the geeks that were in blogging with me in 2005 I know that most of them were in, on Twitter a year before I was I just resisted I'm like I don't need another thing I also didn't really like Facebook because Facebook started you know behind a wall I was like well it's not even searchable why do I care about Facebook and then of course th- as soon as you know they opened it up to search engines and, and opened it up to everybody, you're like, wow, that was, that's, it, it, it was yes. instantly the most massive thing. And so there, there's things like that, that, you know, I guess compared to most agencies in Dallas, we were early on, but I felt late on because the people that I was kind of in contact with were doing all these things. But then they also did, I, I have people who invested a ton of time in things like Second Life. At the time you, Second Life is kind of a virtual reality kind of social network. And there were people, a lot of people, big influencer like this is going to be the biggest thing you know so like Donald Trump will be sending his messages through Second Life well and it didn't happen that never happened Uh, so there have been a lot of those Um, I was a big fan of Dig which of course went away and now it's Reddit Um, and uh, at the same time there was another site that was hugely popular at the time and I'm friends with Drew Curtis who's the, the founder of it called Fark it was this community that was male oriented, um, but this news sharing community. Drew actually ran for governor of Kentucky. Uh, I don't know as an independent. I don't know. I don't. He didn't do that well. But he he, he was out there. He was a serious candidate. Um, but he was. This was this kind of fun site that had a ton of. Have you heard of it? Fark uh, had, had so. huge traffic in in like the. It was like a blog before there was a blog, but it, it was this, it was like a, a different kind of format for a Dig-like community. And as opposed to how Dig or a Reddit was for. It, it actually looked a little bit like a Reddit. It's still out there. It's still, he hasn't changed it much. It's just in terms of, relative to what's out there, he used to be an 800-pound gorilla in that in that space. So I decided, you know what, and this is about the same time Twitter was coming out, you know, I'm going to create a a uh, FARC-like community for PR people and creatives and be sharing news of interest through this vehicle and start a community. And I thought if I build this community, that would have ten times the impact that just writing a blog was going to have. Because I saw that more and more people were coming into blogging and I saw uh, each blog I'm writing, the relative, yes. the relative impact was less. So I wanted to do that next thing. So I invested, well for me it was a lot. I probably ended up investing $20,000 in to, to get uh, this whole thing off the ground. I, I called it spin Thicket at the time. And uh, it was just being kind of this quirky community but I was really trying to build some scale with it. And I had some some um, pretty influential folks who participated here and there but I realized, gosh, it's so hard to get to a scale with this. So I really I tried to create my own social community. Um, invested a lot of time and effort in it, abandoned, basically in a lot of ways, the blog uh, to do that, and it failed. You know, I failed. I never, uh, I had fun with it, but I never built scale with it. And you got to be willing to try that. I didn't like, you know, get down and out about it. I thought, crap, I wasted my money, but um, I learned from it so you just can't always know so I guess that the answer to your question is you have to keep keep trying stuff like I I got very involved in Google Plus and then when I saw hmm not best use of my time not best use of my clients money um, I've gone back and forth on things like Quora so Quora is one that came on gangbusters as a you know it's it's a natural thought leadership platform in social Um, and at first you know, it was all Gangbusters, and then ah, every, it's all LinkedIn Answers. But then LinkedIn Answers went away, and now you know Quora has been able to you know get you know very high-profile interviews with uh, you know doing 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 Quora. Uh, uh, it's it's emerged as it's in the top I believe it's in the top 100 uh, sites in the country uh, now in terms of uh, visits. So um, it's something that's always evolving. Um, I think you need to be fluid in figuring out, particularly since I have to be a steward of our clients.
0: So part of it is really understanding not only what to do, but when to kill it, right? And I was listening and I've been listening to some entrepreneurs and they say it's more important, um, you know, angel investors and VCs to be able to figure out when to kill something when to then to actually move forward with it because the opportunity cost is actually higher. So it, it is. It's, it's
1: like holding on to a stock. I've done that, you know? Yeah. I had a stock that, that I kept thinking, I bought it at a point, and then I, I let it, and it went all the way to zero. I had a stock that went all the way to zero. Um,
0: so from a, from going to switch gears way. a second yeah. and ask you kind of the last question on leadership. Yeah. You know, you work with a lot of successful, you know, CEOs and other influencers and have been around a lot of people. You know, what do you think constitutes you know a great leader versus a good leader like what do they do that really separates them out from the rest because I think a lot of people are here figuring okay how can I take you know, one aspect is taking my leadership ability to the highest levels. Like, what things do I need to be thinking about and embodying when I'm doing that? And I think you have a pretty unique insight because you're working with all of these people across a lot of industries for mm. a long period of time that have been in influential situations. And you've seen, you know, you know, good, bad, and best. And how would you sort of characterize that? Well, what advice would you give or things that you see that really stick out from people that are, you know...
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I would say you, um, the best leaders, uh, I, I think, well, there's, there's leaders and managers, right? And, there, and there's leadership in terms of being a visionary or being able to make, make things happen, understand how to build a successful business. But leadership in terms of the people side um, comes down to inspiring people to, to want to be part of what you're doing. And that comes down to to having a story that you're telling too. They want to be part of that narrative um, uh, of what you're trying to do and why, where you came from, where you're trying to go, and why it's something. I mean, how do you get someone to be
0: a part of that narrative?
1: Well, I think you have to align it with what they want. You know, um, I was going to say that you know, there's persuasion of uh, you know, you know, I'm uh, Barack Obama and and I can, I'm the best speaker on the planet and I can. You know move people to tears with my words and make them feel i want to be part of that and and then there's the, the that level of uh uh persuasion that uh i think george w bush was known to have where he wasn't a very good speaker but he was known for um being really good with people one on one really projecting a sincerity and not putting on airs and just being a guy yes even though he came from a you know a very wealthy family very powerful family he was that when he was one-on-one so forget the politics different, different politicians but both of those skills are incredibly important um, you know I, I the newspaper I worked at Virginia was uh, the Lynchburg paper so I got to know Jerry Falwell a little bit you know Jerry Falwell a uh, fundamentalist uh, Christian leader he started the whole religious right during yes. Reagan era hugely you know what I, I did stories sometimes some very critical stories about his university. Liberty University, uh, which a lot of kids from Texas who are uh, religious or conservative Baptists will go to. And um, he was always so nice to me. It didn't matter what I wrote. And not only that, but everyone I ever talked to or students at his school, and he had at the time over between 10 and 20,000 students, I don't know how many it is now or how much exactly it was, there. he remembered all their names. He was one of those people who meets you and then he remembers your name. That that builds. That's that's a leader. Not everyone just has the capability of doing that. But if you can balance being able to inspire and connect with people across a group and then you can take that to that one-on-one on one level that carries it through. I've seen so many leaders that will say say words, but then when they're with you it's different or they don't seem to care or take an interest right they sit in their
0: office and they don't walk around and get to know the people so they're just you know sitting with their door closed or walking past you and not knowing who the people in the building are really
1: that's so meaningful i mean it's just and i'm terrible i'm like i'm someone who's the opposite of jerry fuller terrible with names and uh, i just i I just forget those things but i like when i'm face to face with someone you know i I honestly want to know how they're doing so i i want to know that that people are happy here and so when I think of great leaders that I've worked with, you know, um, I, I I was really, really like the the founder and chairman of uh, PageNet. That ended up being a billion-dollar company before uh, they were bought and the paging industry went away, of course. That was all in the 90s. His name was George Perrin. Uh, he um, got a lot of co- – he didn't want media coverage. He, it, we mainly got coverage for the executives. Um and for, for the company's uh, products, but um, he mostly got un- unwanted coverage for building the biggest house in, in Dallas. He was in D Magazine, all these places, and he didn't like any of that, but so very wealthy, um, and but you would never know it from talking to him, and the kinds of things that he would do that I will always remember is, you know, here's the chairman of a billion-dollar company, and he'll... He'll just walk in the break room while you're in there. Just ask what you're doing, what you're working on, and actually listen and care. And um, and then things that I did. Like I made mistakes like when I was trying to, like I got him a, um, a speaking gig one time that involved him. He had to go to Boston, uh, some, something like that, of speaking at this industry event. And um, he hadn't done it before. We, as a company, hadn't. And when he came back, I bumped him in the halls and asked him how it went. He was saying all kinds of nice things. And then he just kind of mentioned, or oh, I found out, there's only about 12 people showed up. In other words, I had booked him at a crappy event, yeah. you know. Um, it was not the best use of his time. But when he talked to me about it, he didn't say a word about it. He said he focused on the fact that, you know, what I was doing and why and what the intent behind it and that he got that. So I don't know. There, that stuff goes a long way. You don't forget that stuff, you know. When a <clears throat> when a, someone try, tries to micromanage you or is overly critical, I just don't think those those things have ever had a great impact, you know. But I think especially today, um, you just can't treat people like that. They won't they won't take it. You know, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go do something else. And you know, before I started Idea Growth, PageNet is longer than I stayed anywhere i was there for six years so Um, how do you give
0: people critical uh feedback that they need uh, and not be a jerk like what would you do if you saw someone here that was doing something that needed to be corrected or improved upon or whatever like how would you give that feedback to that person
1: well i think you can be honest without being hurtful and i think what it really comes down to preparation you know, mental preparation about how you're going to deliver the message in such a way that shows that you're trying to be protective of their feelings, you know, that you're not trying to be uh, overly abrupt or that you're, you know, I think a lot of times it's the empathy of realizing, you know, how would you want to be, how would you want to handle this? I've been fired before. I've been in situations where, I've gotten in trouble before, or I've, you know, things were not going well at work. Um, and I've really spent a lot of time thinking about those things. Um, I don't always do it the right way. And I, believe me, since I hadn't managed people in this way before, I, I've made lots of mistakes. And so learning from them has helped me too. But the bottom line is, you know, I, I'm just, I think people should, and the best managers I've had. Have people that I've uh, been people that um, I guess started with the assumption that I had good intent, and and that what you're doing, and by way of criticism, is is a way of helping, and and that if you could take it as that, then it's a positive for everybody, uh, even when we've had to terminate people. Um, what I tell people, which I really believe, um, is um, you just because it's not working out here does not mean you can't knock it out of the park somewhere else. We've articulated these are the reasons why this just doesn't seem to be working. These are the things you seem to be really good at. Um, these are the things you want to do. In terms of where we're going, there's there's not an alignment. You know we've talked about in the past this is the path to get to this place but it's not what you want to do or it's not it doesn't play to your strengths and so um, it's probably best to, to part ways or it's um, or you know what I know you want a promotion but you're not ready for it and it's not doing you any favors uh, promoting you to a level that you're not ready for um, Here's the things that you need to do. So I think empathy being specific and actually caring about you know the person and, and, and being protective of their feelings I mean I don't think that's a that's a pansy thing. I think that's just being human and it's what people want today in a way that yes it didn't used to be that way but I think I don't think that's millennials get a, a bad a lot of bad breaks. I don't think millennials um, want anything that anyone doesn't want today. Um, I just think that's just how the workplace has evolved overall. And there's nothing wrong. It's like people talking about being politically correct. Well, politically correct, you know, obviously you can take everything too far. But really, you're just talking about being sensitive to other people's feelings. Um, You know, that's it. You know, it's not a big thing. Just other people don't see things the way you see. So maybe be inclusive in how you talk about things. It's yeah. a, Say happy holidays, because not everyone's celebrating the same holiday. I mean, this is not a big, shouldn't be a big wedge political issue, because we're just talking about caring about other people yes. and caring what they think, too. It doesn't mean what you think it doesn't matter. It just means what they think matters, too.
0: And caring is a big... Um element of trust. So it's it's also, you know, when you show that you care, you're building a deeper trust with someone else because you show that you're invested inside of them. So that's fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. We've shared a lot of great insights, a lot of wonderful information that people can take action on and learn from. So, how can people connect with you? Find more about what you're doing. So, I want, I want to send them there and check well, out all your great work. And
1: well, unfortunately, I, I have a, a, a personal uh, site that I haven't updated in a while, so I'm even gonna, not even going to mention that. One. But I would say that if you go to Idea Grove. Uh, dot com that's our website um, that's uh, where we're updating kind of what we're doing as an agency I don't have a personal platform that I'm using right now um, uh, I only have my friends on Facebook that's where I have Facebook Instagram places like that but um, the website you can always connect with me on LinkedIn I do I am active on LinkedIn mostly reading rather than posting. But, um, we'll have all I'm, those
0: links in the show notes. So, everyone. Yeah,
1: I've, I, I maintain a lot of uh, relationships through through LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, so that's a, that's a good way to connect.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show with us today and joining in this great conversation. You can learn more on more podcasts with the Executive Breakthroughs. And you can go to my website, jasontroy.com. That's jason, U.com forward slash podcast and you can see more episodes so thanks for joining us today